Welcome everyone to the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology's Last Week in Texas podcast. This is Wayne Stacy, the Executive Director for BCLT. And we're here again with Michael Smith, uh, the leading expert for Texas, uh, not just the Eastern District of Texas. So Michael, we'll, we'll just start with uh, what happened in Texas last week. Well, Wayne, the, uh, the principal story last week in Texas is we had an article come out that I know a lot of uh, the law.com publications picked up uh, about the role that a former uh, uh, law clerk of Judge Alan Albright's in Waco was playing as a court-appointed technical advisor. The headline was that the former law clerk had already billed over $700,000 uh, in fees this year for his work as Judge Albright as a court-appointed technical advisor after he clerked at the court. Yeah, the, I mean the number, the seven hundred thousand number, got a lot of a lot of headlines and and a lot of chatter around on the boards. But there's a lot more behind this story, so I think it's fair to probably start by telling us who is this technical advisor and then what are the qualifications. Well, you're absolutely right about that. Let me, let me explain who the technical advisor is. The article was talking about uh, two people. First of all, Judge Albright uses Dr. Joshua Yee uh, as a court-appointed technical advisor. Now, Josh was a law clerk for Judge Albright for a year and a half before, I think he finished up December of last year. Uh, and I remember uh, talking to Judge Albright and how excited he was that Dr. Yee was going to be coming uh, to work for him as a law clerk. So let me tell you about his background. He holds bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees in electrical engineering, and he worked as an engineer at Freescale Semiconductor in Austin before he got his law degree. And then he was an IP litigation associate at Austin Law Firm for seven years before he started his clerkship. So now, it, of course, is not unusual for some of the law clerks for these patent judges to have had a few years as an associate doing patent litigation. It's not unusual for them to have uh, experience as an engineer before they went to law school. We've even had law clerks that have doctorates. There was one uh, that Judge Gilstrap had that had a doctorate from Stanford, and we still teased her that she was the least qualified law clerk he had because she had not actually yet worked as a litigation associate. Um, but I have never, in any of the cases I've ever seen, I've never seen anyone that has all three. And again, Dr. Yee has uh, more than just a couple of years working as a patent litigation associate. So, so it, he is an extraordinarily qualified person in terms of his background. And then he's also got a year and a half in the belly of the beast, as it were, working in Waco and working on the types of cases that he later became a technical advisor on after the beginning of this year. Well, maybe the, the question is, what, what is a technical advisor? I mean, we, most of us have worked with special masters, uh, but how does the technical advisor uh, compare to a special master, at least as, as being used by Judge Albright? Well, I, I think it goes back to the practice in the Eastern District, actually. That's when we, I think that's when a lot of us first started seeing technical advisors. And what happened there was back in the 2000, uh, Judge T. John Ward and Marshall started using patent lawyers to assist with claim construction issues. Um, he called them technical advisors, but they were not, they're not a court appointed expert. They're not a special master. He would simply bring in a patent lawyer to assist him as an additional law clerk is what their, their work is described as. 
they're not somebody that the uh, parties have access to, like a like an expert might be. You don't depose them. You don't know what advice they're giving the court. They work just as an additional uh, law clerk. Now, in 2011, when Judge Gilstrap and Judge Payne started working the Marshall Patent Docket, one of the things that we told them is the only way to hold trial settings is if you can get out claim construction rulings fairly quickly after the hearing. Because if we're waiting for months to get the claim constructions, then the expert reports are based on the wrong constructions and the cases get behind. So what they started doing was, a, was continuing to use the technical advisor process by bringing in these same um, patent lawyers to assist to work with the court as an extra uh, uh, law clerk. Now, when Judge, uh, my recollection is that when Judge Albright started, um, he was not using technical advisors. He was doing all of this himself in chambers. When Josh left last December, he started appointing Josh to work in, uh, uh, in a lot of cases. But again, the, the way he's working appears to be the same thing we've seen. It's an additional law clerk. It is not a technical person. It's not a um, professor from a technical college that comes in and advises the court on technical issues. It's a patent lawyer. And what I've had judges and court staff tell me is they find that useful because they need that technical advisor to be someone who understands the claim construction process, understands what it is the court's trying to do. They don't want a professor lecturing them on technology. They want someone who has been through the process and can talk to them about it. But, but before, just a few months ago, I, I'm not aware of any judges appointing technical advisors other than in the claim construction context. That was something that, that we'll talk about in a little bit, but that's, that's what's a little different about the more recent use Judge Albright has made of technical advisors. Well, I mean, that's a, it's a great point to jump off of. You know, we, we, I remember using technical advisors uh, with Judge Ward, but it seems like Albright's process is different. So how does how does it get set up and what are the limits or I guess the, maybe the expansive use of, of Josh in, in Judge Albright's court? Well, initially, I think he was being used as, as claim construction. And I know from talking to him that he enjoys claim construction. He enjoys those technical aspects. But what started happening, I think, at the first of the year, we know from the article that he had done uh, a significant amount of work in the Intel case. I think he billed over 170,000 there. So he likely was working on issues other than claim construction, was working on summary judgment, was working on motions to dismiss or, or expert motions. And we know that that's how the court's using him now because I'm getting orders at the outset of cases that appoint him as a technical advisor for claim construction but notes that he may also help the court with other issues as well. So I think uh, it's reasonable to assume that the court is using him uh, on a variety of issues where his expertise and his experience is helpful to the court in keeping the trains running and keeping a case from slowing down because there's just not enough horses in the barn to, to work all the cases at the same time. Well, one of the, the issues that came out in the article that seems to be causing a, a little bit of hand-wringing is the fact that there's a new technical advisor coming on board that maybe doesn't look a whole lot like, like Josh in terms of, of background and experience. Um, what are your thoughts there? 
Uh, well, th that new technical advisor, uh, he does have a lot of experience. He does a lot have a lot of the similar characteristics to Josh. The one thing that's different about him is that he is working out of a law firm. Josh, when he started doing this, he just did it out of his own office. So he was not with a law firm. So the, the new technical advisor is more like the Eastern District ones who, for the most part, are all in firms. But because there are a number that do it in the Eastern District, there's no, this is the one person the judge uses. These are the two people the judge use. If somebody hires so-and-so's firm, and I know that, that that has someone within it that does technical advisor work for a certain judge, I never, it wouldn't occur to me to think, well, that gives them a leg up because there's no one that's very closely identified with the court. The issue we may see uh, if there is substantial amounts of work, technical advisor work going to someone who's in a firm is whether that then starts to give rise to a, a, a perception that that firm maybe has a leg up. I don't think that's gonna happen for several reasons, some of which I can go into and some of which I can't, but that's going to be the question uh, that we have. We don't have that concern with Dr. Yi because he's got his own practice. He seems to be uh, doing this pretty much full time. So there aren't the concerns with um, uh, potential impropriety that you might have if the court were to go out and start picking people out of prominent firms and pulling them in and saying, this is going to be my default person on motions for summary judgment asserting uh, 101 or something. Well, Michael, do you think the, the hand-wringing may be a little bit premature? We, we know Judge Albright's got a second magistrate judge coming online. Uh, do you think that will at least take some pressure off the court and maybe reduce the, the use of the technical assistance? Uh, absolutely. This could very well be a stopgap measure because it took quite a while for Judge Albright uh, to get approval for the additional magistrate. So this may be a stopgap measure uh, for a year, year and a half until the new, the new magistrate judge comes in. And when that magistrate judge comes in, they'll have law clerks, probably technically savvy law clerks. So that will give the judge at least as much as he is able to get out of uh, Dr. Yi and out of uh, uh, the other technical advisor at this point. So this might be a stopgap measure. Also, I think it's important to remember this is still a fairly new judge uh, on the bench in terms of the technical issues. And as Judge Albright um, figures out how he wants to handle things as we become more familiar with how he does things. What we saw in the Eastern District was as judges make clear how they expect things to be done, you had fewer disputes because I don't have a dispute over, well, maybe the judge wants it this way and maybe he wants it this way. I already know that with, with Judge uh, Gilstrap or Judge Mazant. With Judge Albright, we may not yet know how he wants something done. So I do think there's a good chance that this, this is gonna be a stopgap measure and we'll see a decrease in the broad use of technical advisors as additional manpower for the court uh, next spring, next summer. Well, you know, for, for those that, that don't know how technical advisors are paid, I think it's important to know they don't come out of taxpayer money. The technical advisors aren't paid out of the judiciary budget. In fact, they probably, I mean, Josh builds what, 700,000, that's several times what a typical judge's salary is in a, in a year. Um, who's paying, paying that $700,000 a year to Josh? 
That's being paid for by the parties. What you'll typically get is after the technical advisor concludes their work in a case, uh, the judge, they'll send their bills into the judge. The judge will enter an order uh, requiring the parties to split the cost. Uh, I think his bills um, are range from 10 to 30, $35,000 on claim construction, which is split between the parties. Now, again, in Intel, it's $170,000, but there are two cases going on. They're, they're gearing up for trial. They've, there's a pandemic going on. There are freezes going on that are shutting down the state of Texas and a lot of money at stake. So it doesn't surprise me that you had more, more money uh, involved in that case. But in the ordinary case, I think you're looking at something in the, in the very low five figures. Well, and I'm sad that I've gotten to this point, but the very low five figures is a relatively small number for patent litigation. Do you hear litigants complaining about about these fees compared to the services they're getting? Oh, I have not. I have not. We've had this for a long time in the Eastern District, and we're we're used to that. And it's helpful because it gets us well for two reasons. It gets us a claim construction out faster, which means our experts aren't having to do things twice. And I mean, you and I know that this is a fraction of what an expert costs. So, getting things out quicker avoids a lot of expense. Also, again, let me go back to uh, Dr. Yee's uh, qualifications. And again, I've been in the courtroom. I've seen cases. I've seen the work that he's done. I've seen the interaction between him and the judge. And I'm very happy to have that level of expertise available to the court in my case, because I want a solid piece of work early on. I don't want a tentative claim construction where the court's like, uh, I'll get to that later. And then a year later, you've spent a lot more money in the case. And then you find out you've got a dispositive claim construction either for you uh, or against you. So it's, it's money well spent making sure that we have a solid product coming out of the court and coming out earlier rather than later. I, I, I've never really seen anyone complain about the court bringing in technical advisors because we all understand that helps them get what we want, which is solid work product as quickly as we can possibly get it. So you've kind of laid out that this is a special circumstance, special judge, special workload, uh, and special technical advisor. So just more generally, what do you think of the, the idea of technical advisors being adopted by more judges, more courts? Uh, in general, <laughs> I'm being a little contradictory. In general, I don't like it overall because I prefer, I, I don't like the idea of a technical advisor with a broad portfolio. We've got a technical advisor who's working on everything. I prefer having an Article Three judge with Article Three staff, law clerks, magistrate judges, professional staff that's experienced in these cases. But in a situation where you have courts with large dockets, with um, a lot of technical sophisticated um, um, expertise needed in cases, it helps get the product out. And when the use is relatively limited, uh, we found it to be pretty helpful. I don't particularly want judges reaching out and pulling in uh, private lawyers to, to do work on their cases, especially when there's not really a way that uh, parties can have input into that. So I think there is a risk, but I have yet to see it applied in a case where I thought it was a problem. 
So, and again, this may be a high water mark and it may be going down next year, but it, it's, it's certainly an issue to be looking at. I, I just prefer to have people inside chambers doing this, but my analogy is sort of like, um, it's a little like having a football coach announce that, well, I'm really busy, so I'm going to bring in a sports commentator to handle the next several games. And by the way, you players are going to split the commentator's salary. Well, I mean, that's outrageous, and we would raise hell about it until we ask, well, who's the commentator? And we find out, oh, we're going to get Jimmy Johnson to come in and coach you for the next few weeks. Oh, okay. Well, I'm okay in that case. Well, Michael, if we, we move on to the, the Southern District of Texas, it, it seemed that there was a, a pretty good scolding in a patent case down there. What do, what do we make of that? Well, it, it was a really interesting case. The, uh, the, the court had dismissed a plaintiff claim and found that it, it, it was not proper to go forward. And the defendant asked for uh, exceptional case status and fees under Section 285. And Judge Hughes puts out an order. This is not the order you want. The good news is I'm denying the 285 motion, so you don't owe fees. The bad news is I'm putting out an order saying that your conduct is fundamentally unacceptable in a civilized society, uh, that uh, this conduct and disrespectful behavior and stereotypical assumptions uh, are something that's unacceptable, especially for a lawyer in federal court, and your actions reflect poorly on the profession. But the motion for fees is denied. So I, I don't know. Take what you will from it. What, but, but I do think what I take out of it is a lot of times at the end of the case, I don't think the other side's uh, counsel's actions have been appropriate. I think they've been, I might think they've been unprofessional. They've been uh, uh, just the, not the sort of thing that ought to happen. This reminds me that it's not... Uh, a 285 award is not, well, you didn't win Miss Congeniality, so I'm going to assess you with fees. The court, even in this situation, was looking beyond that at um, the case wasn't exceptional. The conduct in the case wasn't exceptional, so you don't get fees. Doesn't mean you were a nice nice guy or a nice nice litigator. So that's it's useful to, to look at that because otherwise, sometimes your clients get the idea that because the other side has been a jerk, we can go get fees. And this is something I may send to a, a client and say, yeah, I know she, she was really a, a horse's whatever during depositions and was difficult to deal with, but that's not enough. So it may be useful to a lot of us uh, in that way. Well, another, another issue that came up in the Western District of Texas, uh, there was a, an interesting case on a settlement agreement that wasn't. Yes, uh, we have a, an order. It's a short order from Judge uh, Albright, but it's useful. Uh, actually, I've had this come up recent in uh, um, mediations where you think you've got a case settled and then you run into a problem with, a, with an additional term or working it out. Sometimes, and I've had, I remember Judge Ward doing this, Judge uh, Gilstrap doing this. They'll look at your term sheet and they'll say, you have a deal. You just can't reach agreement on this language, so I'm going to enforce the deal that you've got, but you've got enough to have an enforceable deal. What Judge Albright was presented with was a situation where the parties agreed to how much money they would pay, but they never worked out what the scope of the release was going to be, and the defendant was saying, well, that includes a broad license to any, any patent you have and any patent you might ever get, and the plaintiff was saying, we never agreed to that. That never came up. 
I've had this come up in other contexts recently with uh, non-disparagement clauses, with, with unrelated provisions, and the court has to decide, do you have enough for a settlement agreement? And in this case, they didn't. They didn't have agreement on all the on, on the, the uh, crucial terms of the settlement. So Judge Albright said, no, that's not enough. Well, I think important about this particular case, it was related to a request for a stay. And so do you think maybe Judge Albright will be a little bit harsher on parties coming in that say we have an agreement? Can you stay the case? Oh, I think so. And, and uh, I've actually had to tell somebody that in the last week where they said, hey, uh, uh, we want to go ask for a stay now. And I'm like, nope. Judge Gilstrap has a specific order on this that says you have to be able to say you've, you've reached an agreement in principle. You can't say we're talking. You can't say we'd just like a stay uh, because we've uh, finished mediation. No, uh, this will be helpful in saying you can't go get a stay because you're most of the way there and you're talking about it, which is essentially what this was. You've got to have an agreement on the key issues an agreement in principle is, is the magic language we, we all have to use uh, in order to go get a stay. Well, the, the last, last case for today uh, was one of the, the big defense verdicts uh, in Texas, and Judge Albright denied a, a motion for a new trial. Um, what's interesting about that, that decision? Well, it, 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 it is interesting. It, defendant, uh, it's Roku in that case, and they've gotten a couple of defense verdicts with Waco juries, and in this case, the plaintiff came in and said, well, we want a new trial because Roku's expert uh, didn't adequately disclose what his opinions were going to be, and he had inconsistent testimony at trial. Therefore, we get a new trial. Judge Albright said no, and he put the kind of language that we're used to seeing from Judge Gilstrap that says the court places great uh, has a lot of faith on the Seventh Amendment, on the uh, right to trial by jury, on the jury's work in this case. And in this case, your complaints are kind of after the fact about what happened with the expert. Yes, the disclosure wasn't exactly in line with the testimony at trial, but it was. It, there was no harm. It was harmless. And secondly, when you're talking about, well, the expert was applying different standards and all these terrible things you were saying that happened at trial, remember that you didn't object at trial. And when the, and as a matter of fact, Judge Albright, and this is the great thing about having a judge with trial experience, when the witness was done, he turns and he looks at the plaintiff and says, is there anything the plaintiff would like to take up with respect to this witness? He gave, he gave a specific opportunity. Okay, any problems you got with this witness you want to raise? And the plaintiff said no. And he said, you can't come in later and tell me it's egregious testimony because you would have objected. So he says this is predicated heavily on the actions of the parties during the trial. So if you're going to raise something later, you've got to raise it during the trial and give the court a chance to resolve it. So that's the thing that I would put in front of younger lawyers and say, this is why you have to object at the time. This is why you have to raise things. You can't wait until after the jury goes against you and come in and say, oh, hey, judge, you should have excluded this expert before trial. You had to have asked him to uh, at the time. This is a, a concept taught to every third year law student in a trial course. So uh, we all know we, you have to raise objections. Yeah, exactly. It's not always fun doing it. And sometimes the judges don't like it. But that's in this case, the court was asking for it. And, and in my experience, 
they want that. They want you to flag for them when there's an issue, and then they can decide if there is or there isn't. But what you can't do is wait until after you get a bad result and then start crying foul at that point. Well, Michael, once again, thank you. It's uh, been, a, been a good week with a lot of, a lot of interesting material. I'm sure some of these issues are going to uh, arise again here in the, the very near future. I expect so. It's been a lot of fun this week, Wayne. Thanks very much. Take care.